On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. Follow along as I read our text, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, if you'll follow along as I begin now in verse 14 where we read, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Well, we began looking at Paul's prayer here in Ephesians 3 last week, and you'll remember that this brief prayer is all intercession. It's all intercession. There's, there's a little thanksgiving and, and no confession. There's the briefest adoration of God as Father, and then Paul brings the Ephesian congregation before the Lord and begins to ask the Lord to bless them in, in certain mighty ways. And the ultimate goal of this prayer is in verse 19, that his readers might be filled with all the fullness of God. And so what we have here is Paul, who was a prisoner chained to a Roman soldier, interceding for his readers in spite of his own more than difficult circumstances. Because the thing that dominated Paul's concern and passion was never himself, but rather the furtherance of the gospel and the spiritual progress and well-being of the people of God. And so even though he might be confined, the enemy couldn't prevent Paul from praying, and pray he did constantly and continually, not for himself, but rather for others. I mean, almost every prayer of Paul's that is recorded in Scripture was for the spiritual well-being of others. And as we said last week, this prayer of intercession breaks down this way. In verses 14 to 15, we have the introduction to the prayer. In verses 16 to 19, we have Paul's three requests, and in verses 20 to 21, the conclusion of the prayer. Last week, we looked at verses 14 and 15 and the introduction to the prayer in which Paul addresses the Father, and he began in verse 14 with the words, for this reason, for this reason, which refer back to the deep, rich theological truths taught in chapter 2 and and in chapter 3, verses 2 to 13. I mean, it was the richness of the doctrine that had been taught that prompted Paul to pray, and he couldn't help but pray because doctrine leads to prayer, because doctrine opens up our understanding of God, and that will inevitably lead to prayer and worship. And so Paul said, for this reason I bow my knee, my knees. Though Paul knew it wasn't necessary whenever he prayed to literally go down on his knees, when he prayed for the Ephesians, he bowed his knees before the Father on their behalf, not because that position or any other is especially sacred, but rather because it reflected his attitude of reverence for the greatness and the glory of God and his humble submission and intense passion. And for this reason, he said, I bow my knees before the Father, When Paul speaks of praying to the Father, he has in mind the access we have as God's children. And God is our loving Father who delights to hear our prayers, and it's our great privilege to be allowed to come before our Father in prayer. 
And Paul then said in verse 15 that from this Father, every family in heaven and on earth is named. And when he speaks of every family, he's talking about the whole family of God. God's new family, the church, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, male and female, young and old, educated and uneducated, everyone, all the saints of every age, those still on earth and those already in heaven. And so Paul got down on his knees, bowing before God the Father, who is the father of this entire church family, and he's praying for real people, people he loved, he was concerned about, because their situation touched his heart. And he was asking the Father that these people in Ephesus might have the strength and power to live a transformed life, that there would be a difference in their behavior, that they would, in fact, act and live as people who truly had experienced the grace of God in Jesus Christ. He was praying that there would be strength and power and love and knowledge and the fullness of God in their lives. I mean, those are the concerns of this prayer. And now we come to Paul's specific prayer request in verses 16 to 19. And as we said last week, instead of a a series of disconnected petitions, we we should see see these or think of these as, as a progression in which each petition is laying the groundwork for the next. And so we, need, we should picture them as a pyramid. The first request is the bottom layer of stones. As the prayer advances, Paul is building toward the glorious climax. Let's look now at verse, Paul's first request in verses 16 to 17a, where he prays that his readers may be strengthened. Look at verse 16. Paul prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And so Paul's first request for his readers is for power. Paul doesn't pray for a change in their circumstances. He doesn't merely offer some kind of general prayer for them that God may bless them and that God may be good to them. His prayer is exclusively spiritual. In this prayer, he's not concerned about the material, but the spiritual. He focuses his attention and his concern on the spiritual state of the Ephesians because his entire attitude to life is a spiritual one, and so he always starts with the spiritual. And sadly, spiritual concerns take up very little space in our prayers. In fact, oftentimes, Spiritual concerns are non-existent when it comes to our prayers. And it seems that far too often our prayers are more like this. We pray God's blessing upon people. We pray that God may be gracious to them and look upon them. We pray for physical needs, physical strength and health and healing. We ask for athletic ability or or for fitter and healthier bodies and for better relationships, for better jobs or better pay, etc., etc., And it may or may not please God to grant such requests. But we can be absolutely certain of God's desire to give us spiritual power for doing his will. So let me ask you. When you pray to God, what is your greatest concern about yourself? Are you concerned mostly about circumstances and ambitions, you know, your body, your interests and activities? Or are you primarily concerned about your spiritual state and condition before God? What is it that receives the the greatest attention and the most time in in your personal prayers and devotions? Are you primarily concerned about your spiritual growth and development, your knowledge of God, your relationship to Him, and your enjoyment of Him? And is that the big thing, the primary thing? Or do you give priority to the things that belong to the the, the temporal, the the externals of life? Well, Paul prays with a confidence that believes God is willing and able to answer his prayers because he knew God as Father. He he knew that he was the son of of an immensely rich Father in heaven. And his faith was focused on his father's riches. And that's why he begins his prayer by asking that according to the riches of his glory, God would grant his request. And the word translated according to is not the idea of merely out of his riches, but rather in proportion 
to his riches, or on a scale equivalent with God's riches, or on, on a scale that corresponds to his inexhaustible riches. And the word riches literally describes material prosperity, riches, or wealth, and it, it refers to an abundance of material resources and possessions exceeding the norm of a particular society, and used figuratively as it is here. It describes a spiritual abundance or, or prosperity. I mean, just an inexhaustible uh, wealth. And the word glory, I mean, the glory of God, it speaks of everything that God is. You know, the sum of, of all the attributes is God, of God. His might, His majesty, His holiness, His purity, His righteousness, His justice, His mercy, His grace, His love. God in the, in the totality of His being. God's glory is, is everything that He is. And God is all of these things to an infinite degree all of the time. He is not more one, uh, than, uh, more one than He is the other. God is, is all of these things all of the time to an infinite degree. And if they all begin to be poured out from heaven like Niagara Falls this very moment and then kept flowing out for a million years... They would be just as much in God at the end of that time as when the current first began. And all that God is in the totality of his being has no height, depth, breadth, and no length. Even the angels cannot begin to plumb the depths of all that God is. And God's riches are like himself, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, inexhaustible. They're, they're the riches of his glory. They, they reflect the absolute perfection and the heavenliness of God. So when Paul prays, asking that according to the riches of his glory, God would grant his request, he has in mind the limitless resources of God, and he is asking that his readers may receive the benefits they require in accordance or in proportion to God's great and inexhaustible riches. You see, the greater a person's wealth, the greater his gift must be to qualify for giving according to his wealth. And many a wealthy man gives out of his riches, giving what may seem like large amounts to some of us, but in fact, uh, they are in fact actually very small in proportion to his riches. But our Father in heaven, he's not like that. Our Father in heaven gives according to his riches. And you know, an earthly king is glorified when his subjects expect great things from him. Well, this is all the more true when it comes to God. Because he gives in a measure that is in proportion to the inexhaustible riches of his glory. God is not miserly or reluctant in answering our prayers. He doesn't give grudgingly or in meager portions as if he were afraid he might exhaust his wealth. No, God gives proportionately according to the measure of his infinite fullness. And sometimes it's almost as if we're afraid that, that, we ask, that we might ask too much of God. And so we approach him timidly as though you know, we're not really sure if, if he's able to meet our need or not. And I'll tell you something, when we pray with such low expectations and, and little hope and little faith, we dishonor God who is more than able to answer our prayers. And because of the riches of God's glory, the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And the implication is he answers our, that prayer. And that's really the only condition. Is it God's will? Because he's able to meet any and every need we may have out of the riches of his glory if it's according to his will. So we need to learn from Paul's prayer that, that we can never ask too much of God and we'll never strain the resources of God. And so when we come before the Lord in prayer, we need to remember, uh, as John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, has so well said. Newton wrote, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. 
You see, the point is, God is not lacking in resources to meet our needs. The resources available to fulfill Paul's confident request are, are limitless. I mean, they're, they're absolutely staggering. They're completely without bonds because they're according to the riches of God's glory, which is why Paul prayed with confidence, saying in Philippians 4.19, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And in formulating his prayer by asking according to God's riches and glory, Paul is, is assuring his readers that the Father was wholly able to answer his prayer and to meet their needs. And so he prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you. He may grant you. Paul prays that God would grant the Ephesians these blessings. And this word grant, it's such a, it's such a great word. It means to give. It means to freely give. I mean, God makes me a grant. God gives me this. It's a free gift. You don't have to earn it. it you don't have to purchase it. You simply ask for it and, re, and receive it. That He may grant you. There's no qualification. That He may grant you if you're super spiritual. You know, that he may grant you if you're a, an officer in the church. No, he doesn't. there's no qualification. That he may grant you that the weakest saint, the weakest, feeblest saint can lift up his face, even when he can't even stand on his feet, he can just look up and say, Lord, have mercy on me. God, grant me. Lord, give to me. And he will, according to the riches of his glory. And what is it that Paul is asking that God freely give to them? We'll look back at the verse. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. So he asks that they may be strengthened. And the word strengthened means to make strong, to take courage, to, to gain the upper hand over. And it's used in Luke to describe the child Jesus growing and becoming strong in spirit and wisdom. It's used in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, where it clearly refers to manly strength. And in this context, the implication is that the believer is to be strong, to be able to wage war spiritually against any evil influence, such as the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the form of this word strengthened in the Greek is passive. You say, what does that mean? Well, it simply means that this is not something they can do. This is not something they could do on their own, but it's something rather God must do to them or do in them. This is something God must do in them. And so Paul is asking that God would strengthen his readers and to strengthen them, he says, with power. Earlier in his prayer, in chapter 1, Paul prayed that believers might know the immeasurable greatness of God's power for them as believers, which he said is the very power God used to raise Jesus from the grave. So we're talking about astounding power, resurrection power. In chapter 3, verse 7, Paul said that his own ministry was given to him by the working of God's power. At the end of the chapter, he says that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to his power at work within us. But here in verse 16, he's praying that they would receive a measure of that strength and power. That they might not only know it, but they might personally experience it as well. And obviously the kind of power that Paul has in mind is spiritual power. And the word power means the power or ability to carry out some function or the potential for functioning in some way. I mean, Paul is not asking God to give them power to perform spectacular miracles, but rather the spiritual power needed to be mature, stable, intelligent Christian. And how does God do this? How are believers strengthened with power? Look back at the verse. Paul says that he may grant you to be strengthened with power. How? Through his spirit. 
through his spirit. The one who strengthens and imparts this power is the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit who convicted us of sin and who gave us the gift of faith that enabled us to believe. I mean, we, we could never have believed without the Holy Spirit because the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly or foolishness to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But God has given to us his Spirit and it is by the Spirit we believe. He indwells every believer and he is working in us and through us, strengthening and enabling us to live the Christian life. I mean, are, are we passive in all of this? I mean, do we just sit back and do nothing and expect to gain spiritual strength? And to sit back, relax, Lord, strengthen me. And do nothing, just sit there? Well, of course not. How do you gain physical strength and stamina? Well, you eat a proper diet, you, you exercise, you, you work hard. What's the same in the spiritual realm? We have to feed ourselves regularly on the Word of God. We have to pray and commune with God. You know, we're to seek God's will in all the decisions of life. We're we're to seek to walk in obedience to God's Word, walking by the Spirit so that we'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. And like physical growth and strength, spiritual growth and strength doesn't doesn't happen overnight. But spiritual food and and spiritual exercise add to our strength and endurance. So we're not passive. There are things that we must do. But having said that, we also need to understand this that we are only able to do the things that lead to our spiritual growth and strength by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, Paul put it this way in Philippians when he wrote, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what's he saying? Well, we're to work out our salvation. In other words, we're to live it out. We're to live it out in every area of our lives. But we can only do that because the Holy Spirit is at work within us, enabling and empowering so that we will be able to do his will. And it's always good for us to remember that Jesus performed his ministry on earth in the power of the Spirit. Luke 4, 1, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Verse 14 of Luke 4, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report went out through all the surrounding country. Acts 10.38, we read, How God appointed Jesus, uh, anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good, and that implies that he did good, empowered by the Spirit, and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Jesus ministered on earth in the power of the Spirit. And this is the source of power we have for living the Christian life. I mean, my goodness, do you think if Jesus ministered on earth in the power of the Spirit, you're going to do this on your own? Is that what you think? We need his power. He is the source of power that we have for living the Christian life. If we're battling temptation, we need power to resist it and be victorious to the glory of God. If we're facing a tough trial or a tough moral choice at at work, we, we need power to do the right thing so that Jesus might be honored. If we're shrinking back from sharing our faith, we need power to speak the truth regardless of what the world may think of us for speaking it. We need the Holy Spirit's power, enabling power. It is the power communicated to us by the Holy Spirit that enables us to wage victorious battle with three mortal enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, which are all seeking to turn us from God and to self with all of its ungodly, unholy attitudes and actions. It is the power communicated to us by the Holy Spirit that enables us, as one man said, to serve valiantly, endure patiently, suffer triumphantly, and if need be, die gloriously. 
You see, without God's power, we would never be able to stand up to the assaults of the enemy or the flesh or the world. But with God's power, with his enabling power, we can be spiritually strong so that every area of our lives is characterized by godliness. We need the Holy Spirit's divine enabling power every moment of every day of our lives and in every circumstance. Yet sadly, as an overreaction to all of the abuses of the Spirit we see in so many charismatic and hyper-charismatic circles, the Holy Spirit is almost the forgotten member of the Trinity. And in some places, his name is rarely mentioned. In fact, in much of the evangelical church today, it's almost as if uh, people believe that they can live the Christian life on their own apart from the Holy Spirit of God. All you need to do is read your Bible, pray, try to do your best, and you're good. Well, how do you think you're going to be able to read the Bible with any understanding, apart from the Holy Spirit? Who is it that leads us and guides us into the truth? Holy Spirit. If you read the book of Acts, you see the importance of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church because there are some 59 references to the Spirit in Acts or one-fourth of the total references found in the entire New Testament. Someone has said, if God took the Holy Spirit out of this world, most of what we Christians are doing would go right on, and nobody would know the difference. And that's sad but true. Because so much of what goes on in the church today is done in the strength of the flesh apart from the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit's divine enabling power to live the Christian life, all of it, from start to finish. And our lives and our churches would be transformed if we lived every day in utter dependence upon the Holy Spirit who indwells us and who the Bible says is our comforter, our advocate, and our helper. These Ephesian Christians lived out their faith in a very hostile environment. And they were no longer to walk as the Gentiles did. They were to put on the the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. They were to give no opportunity to the devil. They were to put on the whole armor of God in order to stand against the schemes of the devil. And so if ever a people needed power, these believers in Ephesus did because you can't do those things in your own strength. And so Paul prayed asking asking God that according to the riches of his glory, he would strengthen the Ephesians with power through his spirit because he didn't want them leading a poor, weak Christian life, a substandard Christian life. And back in, in verse 16, notice where he prays for us to be strengthened with power. Where is it? In your inner being, right? In your inner being. Or some translations have it, the inner man, or the inner person. What is that? Well, Paul's referring to our inmost being. That part of our being that includes the mind, the will, the conscience, the affections, and so on. In short, the seed of intellectual and spiritual life. It's the spiritual part of the believer's new nature where the Holy Spirit dwells and and does his strengthening and renewing work. In Romans chapter 7, verse 22, Paul refers to it as the part of our being by which Christians delight in the law of God. And the inner being is where we need strength and power. We We need it on the inside. That's where it starts. I mean, this is how we fight sin, proclaim the gospel with courage and and love people the way Christ has loved us. It begins on the inside, and that's so important because what you are on the inside is what you really are. And you can't hide that from God. What you really are is what you are on the inside where nobody else sees but God. And you have absolutely no hope of having spiritual power on the outside unless you have it on the inside. 
And that's where the battle has to be won. It's won by the power of the Spirit in the inner person. And only the Holy Spirit can strengthen us in our inner being. He is the one who enables and empowers us. I mean, the inner man then is the issue, and that's what Paul's focus was. Paul prioritized God's work within us, not not in the outward man, but in the inner man. And of course, there, of course, there's nothing wrong with praying for the outward circumstances of life. We're told to in Scripture. And Paul was very concerned for the physical health of believers, and, and he was used by God to bring healing to many. He was very concerned for the, the poor saints in Jerusalem and worked hard to, to raise money for them. But God's primary intention is to work within us. Why? Because God is more concerned with our holiness than he is our happiness. God's primary intention is to work within us. But as we all are are very much aware of, our culture places primary importance on the outer person, right? I mean, that's why every year millions and millions of dollars are spent by people on Botox and plastic surgery and cosmetics and creams to to make you look younger and feel more vibrant. But, you know, I suppose on the other hand, as J. Vernon McGee once said, if the barn needs painting, paint it. (laughs) Don't blame that on me, it's J. Vernon McGee said. But the point... It's simply that millions, millions of dollars are spent every year by people on the outer man in an attempt to, to stay young and to stave off the inevitable. But the inner person is far more important. And why is that? Because the outer man is destined to perish. The outer man is only a temporary housing for the real person, the inner man. You say, well, that's kind of depressing. Well, the good news is that even though the outer person of the believer is wasting away, we can rejoice. For as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Yeah, our bodies are wearing out. More slowly for some, more rapidly for others. But our bodies are wearing out. But while our bodies are are weakening, our inner man may be renewed by the Spirit and empowered for life. And as believers, we grow stronger and stronger even while our bodies grow old. And as one man said, we're, we're frail containers pulsating with divine power. Or that's the way it should be. I mean, the older we get, the more dynamic we should be spiritually. The more we should be pulsating with God's power. I mean, Paul's outer man was wasting away as a prisoner in Rome, chained to a a Roman soldier, but he wasn't discouraged by the hardships he suffered in ministry because his inner man was being renewed daily. One commentator said, Most of us in the West have not suffered great persecution, but all of us are getting older. In fact, sometimes we can see in elderly folks something of the process that Paul has in mind. We all know senior saints who, as their physical strength is reduced, nevertheless become more and more steadfast and radiant. Their memories may be fading, their arthritis may be nearly unbearable. Their ventures beyond their small rooms or apartments may be severely curtailed, but somehow they live as if they already have one foot in heaven. As their outer strength weakens, their inner being runs from strength to strength. We could say from glory to glory. Conversely, he said, we know elderly folk who, so far as we can tell, are not suffering from any serious organic decay, yet as old age weighs weighs down on them, they nevertheless become more and more bitter more caustic, demanding, spiteful, and introverted. It's almost as if the civilizing restraints imposed on them by cultural expectations are no longer adequate. In their youth, they had sufficient physical stamina to keep their inner being somewhat capped. 
Now with reserves of energy diminishing, what they really are in their inner being is coming out. Even for those of us who are still some distance from being senior citizens, the restrictions and increasing limitations of the outer being make themselves felt. And then he says, my body is not what it was 20 years ago. Every time I take a shower, a few more hairs disappear down the drain, never to be seen again. I have arthritis in two or three joints. I have to watch my intake of calories. My reaction times are a little slower than they used to be. In a couple of years, I'll need reading glasses. And someday, if this old world lasts long enough, I shall waste away. And my outer man will be laid to rest in a hole six feet deep. Yet inwardly, Paul insists, in the inner being, we Christians are being renewed day by day. And our outward man is perishing, and nothing, nothing can be done to prevent that, because it's appointed unto a man wants to die, and that's where we're all headed. But it's God's will for all his children that our inner man be renewed day by day. So although the outer physical man becomes weaker and weaker with age, the inner spiritual man should continually grow stronger and stronger with, the, with power through the Holy Spirit. And so Paul bows the knee before the Father and prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. You know, this prayer of Paul's, which we've really only begun to look at, ought to influence uh, our attitude toward prayer. First of all, we ought to learn from Paul how important prayer really is. We need to think less about what our own efforts can accomplish and more about what God will do by his might in answer to our prayers. And we should see prayer as an investment we make uh, for things of eternal significance and glory. Let me read that again. We should see prayer as an investment we make for things of eternal significance and glory. And so, can we not give a significant place in our lives and on our schedules for prayer, realizing its eternal importance and its power? Second, this prayer ought to influence the content of our prayers. And I would never ever discourage uh, anyone from making requests about their needs, their, their troubles, their trials and difficulties. Again, we're told to make all of our requests made known to God, and we absolutely should. But we should also pray more for the spiritual needs of the inner man. We should be praying for faith and holiness, zeal and endurance, patience and humility, love and faithfulness. I mean, these are the areas in which our prayers are most likely and most quickly to bear an abundant harvest. And third, this ought to encourage us to be more serious about interceding for others in prayer. You know, we lament that loved ones don't believe. Well, are we laboring? I mean, laboring. Are we laboring for them in prayer? Do we even know what it means to labor in prayer? Our nation is sinking into a morass of evil under God's judgment of abandonment. Do we pray for revival? And we know people who are weak in faith, who who are tempted by the world, who are discouraged by hardship. Are we praying for them? Are we praying for them to be strengthened with power in the inner being? And we want our church to be blessed and and to be a blessing to others. Do we pray for the Holy Spirit to work through God's Word in us and among us and then to melt our hearts in obedience and love? Well, if not, then we we shouldn't expect any of these things to happen. Because as James said, you, you do not have because you do not ask. Perhaps if we spent more time praying and less time complaining, things might happen. The believers of the early church, I mean, were weak. Talk about a minority. They were a weak minority. 
vulnerable in a hostile world. Yet they set an example for us by praying to God who filled them with the holy spiritual might that absolutely changed history. So Paul began his prayer by asking the Father to grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. And now in verse 17, Paul tells us the effect of this spiritual strengthening. Look at verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In Scripture, the word heart does not mean only the affections. That's what our society generally uh, thinks of it as, the place of our affections. That's not, that's not uh, what it means in, in the Scripture. It doesn't mean only the affections. Generally, it's speaking about the very center of the personality. In fact, it's really synonymous with the inner being in verse 16. That part of our being that includes the mind, the will, the conscience, the affections, and so on. In short, again, the seed of our intellectual and spiritual life. This is the spiritual part of believers uh, where the Holy Spirit dwells and does his strengthening and renewing. So Paul is telling us that the aim of the Holy Spirit's strengthening you and power in the inner man is so that Christ may dwell in your hearts, you know, in the very center of your lives, through faith. Now, a couple of things need to be said before we get into the verse itself. We often hear people talk about inviting Jesus or accepting Jesus into your heart. Evangelists often use the phrase that way and and ask people to uh, accept Jesus or receive Jesus into their hearts. But it may surprise you to learn that this is the only text in the New Testament that uses the imagery of Christ in the heart. And this is not an evangelistic verse at all. Revelation 3.20 is another verse that is almost always taken in an evangelistic sense. In fact, I just heard a very well-known pastor and evangelist use it in this sense the other night. There in Revelation 3.20, Christ is depicted as standing outside the shut door of the sinner's heart, pleading for the sinner to let him in and, and to receive him into his heart. But loved ones, you need to understand that is a completely false interpretation of Revelation 3.20. Completely false. First of all, the text never states that it's the door to anyone's heart. And secondly, The context of that verse is in the letter to the Laodicean church. It's what the Spirit says to the churches. Those words are not addressed to unbelievers, but to those in the church of Laodicea who professed to be Christians. They were Christians whose relationship wasn't right with God. No doubt some were not genuine believers at all, but in any any case, they were in the Christian church. These were words spoken to the church. It's not an evangelistic verse at all. And it shouldn't be used that way. And so when Paul prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, he's not praying for their conversion. He's referring to Christ dwelling in the hearts of those who were already believers. Well, how do we know that? Well, quite simply, because Paul has already said of them that they had heard the word of the truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. They were dead in trespasses and sin. God made them alive together with Christ. They are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. They were brought near by the blood of Christ. They they are in Christ, and he is in them. They're fellow citizens of God's kingdom, members together in God's household, and a holy temple, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. They're believers. And we know from Scripture that Christ indwells every believer through the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion. And if Christ doesn't live in you, you're not a Christian. No matter how religious you may be or how strongly you affirm all of the Christian creeds, if Christ is not living in you by His Spirit, you're not a Christian. 
Okay, so why then does Paul pray that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith if he's writing to those who were already believers? Well, it's quite sim- simple, actually. The key to understanding this is found in the word dwell. When Paul prays for Christ to dwell within us, he uses a particular word with a specific emphasis. There are two words Paul might have used, both of which are based on a Greek word which means to dwell. The more common word means to abide or to inhabit, but not necessarily permanently. This word was used of Abraham as a sojourner or pilgrim in the promised land, and this is not the word that Paul uses for Christ dwelling in our hearts. Paul, here, Paul uses a word that means to take up a permanent residence. A, actually, it, it means more of a settling in, a settling in. And in the context of this passage, the implication is not simply that of Christ being inside the, the house of our hearts, but rather him being at home there, settling in, settling down as a family member. And so it's clear Paul's not talking about conversion since he's praying for people who, have, who are already believers. I mean, Christ has already come to them and is settling in. So then what's Paul praying for here? Paul is praying, what he's praying for now is that as he is settling into our hearts, the Lord Jesus, through the Spirit, might exert an ever-increasing and progressively more powerful influence on our lives and in our hearts. In other words, Paul wants her to be more of Christ and less of us. As one man wrote, the indwelling of Christ is a thing of degrees. I mean, Christ can dwell in us uh, as Christians and does, but yet he can dwell more fully in us. What Paul is speaking of is the further and richer dwelling that occurs as Christ settles in and takes possession of more and more of us. In other words, every corner of our lives so that there's no known area of our lives that we would be uncomfortable having Christ share it with us. And one way to understand this idea is given by Robert Munger in his booklet, My Heart, Christ, Home. And here's just kind of a a summation of that booklet. He pictures the Christian life as a house with Jesus going through it room by room. Jesus goes into the library, which may be compared to the mind, and he finds there all kinds of falsehood and trash. He wants to toss it all out and replace it with the truth of his word. He goes in, excuse me, to the dining room of, of the appetite, and he finds there all sorts of sinful desires. And he wants to replace pride and greed and lust with godly desires like humility, meekness, and love. He goes into the living room and finds that worldly company have been let into the heart, and and he wants to replace them with godly fellowship. He goes into the closet, or he peers into the closet, and there he finds secret and cherished sins which, which have to be brought out into the light and then shown to the door. That's what Paul's talking about here. And that's how God works in our hearts. Jesus intends to live in our hearts, and so they must be made fitting for him. And so he moves from room to room until every area of our lives is suitable for his dwelling place. John MacArthur wrote, Jesus enters the house of our hearts the moment he saves us, but he cannot live there in comfort and satisfaction until it is cleansed of sin and filled with his will. He cannot be fully at home until he is allowed to dwell in our hearts through the continuing faith that trusts him to exercise his lordship over every aspect of our lives. You know, Jesus said in John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our what with him? Make our home with him. And you know, many, many, if not most of us, have moved into a new house, often one that that needed quite a bit of fixing up. 
You know, we may not like the wallpaper in the bedroom or the bathroom. The, the roof might leak a little bit. The kitchen isn't laid out just exactly like we'd like it to be. Of course, the garage always needs shelving, right? And so generally when we move in, we take care of the, the major items first and, and then the others as we can, as we can afford it over the years. And, but then as the months and, and the years go by, more and more of the house begins to reflect our own personality and our own tastes. You know, at first we're not at all that, that comfortable in the house, but after a while we, we begin to settle in and we begin to, to feel at home. And then after a lifetime in that house... It becomes so dear to us, we, we really can hardly think of living anywhere else. And this is how the Christian life works. When Jesus sends the Spirit into the believer's heart, he finds all sorts of problems. There's trash piled in the corners, and so much of the decor doesn't fit his tastes. And so he gets to work. And as we respond to, to his working in us in faith, he becomes more, at, more and more at home in our hearts and his influence is seen in more and more places so that in the end, our heart will, will be a dear and beloved home of God and his son. But between now and then, there's a lot of work to be done. It's what sanctification is all about. One man said this, make no mistake, when Christ first moved into our lives, moves into our lives, he finds us in, in very bad repair. It takes a great deal of power to change us, and that is why Paul prays for our power. He asks that God may so strengthen us by his power in our inner being that Christ may genuinely take up residence within us, transforming us into a house that pervasively reflects his own character. And loved ones, this is what we should want to happen in our lives. And realizing that this is what Jesus is doing, that certainly ought to motivate our faith. I mean, Christ wants to live in you with the result that his glory will shine more and more in your heart and his love for you will become more and more evident. And so in light of this, we ought to pray for an increase of the Spirit's power and a more settled presence of the Lord Jesus. You know, we hear a lot today about spirituality or about being spiritual. Well, here's the Bible's description of true spirituality. That Jesus Christ should increasingly dwell and rule in your heart. That's true spirituality. And so we should be praying for the very thing Paul is praying for in this passage. I bow my knees before the Father, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You know, we experience the power of the Spirit as we're being more conformed to Christ and, and he is more comfortable in more places in our hearts, in our minds, in our desires, in our wills, in our affections, and in our pleasures. And really what Paul is praying for here is that they might experience in their inner lives what he says he has experienced. You know, I am crucified with Christ, he tells the Galatians. Indeed, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We really need to pray for the Spirit to work in us with power, don't we? Because it begins on the inside. You're never going to have spiritual power on the outside if you don't have spiritual power and strength on the inside. And you'll notice that this is through faith. That Christ will dwell or settle down in our hearts through faith. I mean, His ever-deepening, indwelling, settling in doesn't just happen. I mean, biblical faith is not passive. You know, it's not this where you let go and let God. That's so unbiblical. 
Rather, it's an active reliance on God and his promises, often in the face of impossible circumstances. So that as we trust all that we are, you know, moment by moment on the grace and sufficiency of Christ, he increasingly takes possession of more and more of us and becomes more at home in our lives. You see, a life that is empowered by the Spirit is one that is totally dependent upon God. It's a life of faith. For as the Bible says, without faith we cannot please God, nor can we experience the rich blessings in Christ that can be mined only by faith. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And you know, this, this prayer for, for strengthening was not a mere wish. Rather, this is the petition of the Apostle Paul for the church. And it's my prayer for myself, And it's my prayer for this church as well. So I want to leave you this morning with with this question, or maybe a few questions. (laughs) Is Christ at home in your heart? Or is he like a visitor? You know, are you acting as a good host to Jesus Christ in your life? Are you making your heart a comfortable place for the Holy Son of God to dwell? Is he comfortable with your entertainment? Is he comfortable with how you spend your free time? Is he comfortable with your thoughts and friendships? Is he progressively exercising his lordship over every corner of your life and heart. You know, Paul said this to the Corinthians. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So that's Paul's first request. And next week, Lord willing, or excuse me, the, the, the week after that, we'll look at the second request, maybe the second and third. But we'll see, Lord willing. A lot to think about, isn't there? Should really make us examine Uh, our prayer lives, what we pray for, how we pray for others. So a lot to think about. Thank the Lord that he loves us enough to challenge us. See, he, he loves us so much, he's not willing to leave us the way that we are. You hear people say that God loves us unconditionally. Well, I suppose you could say that when when we first believe, he takes us just as we are. But his love for us goes far beyond unconditional. Because unconditional love not only loves the person the way they are, they're fine if the person stays that way. But God's love for us isn't that way at all. He will not leave us the way that we are, the way that we came. It's what sanctification is all about. It's a lifelong process of God working in us by his spirit to conform us more and more into the image and the likeness of Christ. You see, he loves us far too much to leave us the way we are, and he will not. So we can thank the Lord for that. Right? Thank the Lord for his great love for us. Thank the Lord that he loves us enough to challenge us, to convince, to rebuke, to exhort with all long-suffering. It's all part of it. 
So may the Lord help us meditate on these things and, and seek the Lord as to how he might want to apply them in our life. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org, calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. It's your love that makes me see. It's your word that comforts me by your blood. We have been sent.